Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Monday the 26th of October. Today, a secret police database containing the details of thousands of political activists is revealed by The Guardian. There are people on the database who have got no criminal record at all. One of these is Mark Thomas, the comedian. Also today, Shadow Chancellor George Osborne tells the banks, stop paying yourselves bonuses and lend the money to your customers. He's going to be saying that that cash should be put onto banks' balance sheets to support new lending. And why it's not grim up north. We have this extraordinary image, the mills, the brass bands, the flat caps. It was a glorious time and a heroic time, but that has gone now. First, Bill Overton's here with the news and today's papers. The former Bosnian Serb President Radovan Karadzic goes on trial today at the War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague. The process starts despite the fact that Karadzic, who's acting as his own lawyer, has boycotted the process because he claims he's not had enough time to prepare his defence. He faces charges of war crimes and genocide relating to the Bosnian War in the 1990s, in particular his role in the Srebrenica massacres, which saw more than 7,000 men and youths murdered in July 1995. Talks aimed at averting further postal strikes are being held today. General Secretary of the TUC, Brendan Barber's invited union representatives and Royal Mail management to fresh talks in the hope the deadlock can be broken on the issues of jobs and modernisation. The next planned postal strike is due to start on Thursday. The shadow Chancellor George Osborne is expected to lend his voice to the growing criticism of bank bonuses in a speech to the city today. He'll say banks should only pay significant bonuses in shares, not cash. Last week, the Centre for Economics and Business Research said city bonuses would hit £6 billion this year, up from £4 billion in 2008. Career advice is to be given to children as young as seven, according to the school's secretary. Ed Ball says primary schools will offer career-related learning and opportunities to experience university life and the world of work. Launching the Careers Advice Initiative alongside Manchester United manager Sir Alex Ferguson, the minister said children need to think about possible careers before choosing subjects in secondary school. Now look at today's papers. The Guardian leads with police in £9 million scheme to log domestic extremists. Reporting police are collecting personal details of thousands of political activists and storing them on a national database. Ministers back Blair as the best man to lead EU is the headline in today's Times. The paper reporting David Miliband's declaration of support for Tony Blair's candidacy for the position of EU president. The Daily Telegraph main picture is of Andrew Lloyd Webber who the paper reports is to undergo surgery for prostate cancer. The Daily Mirror also reporting on that story the headline reading i'll beat this cancer power to the grandparents says the daily mail millions of grandparents are to be given new rights to protect their access to grandchildren after separation and divorce the paper reports the policy was announced by tory shadow cabinet minister david willits in an interview with the daily mail today and the back pages are dominated by the drama in the premiership liverpool manager rafael benitez will feel a little easier in his job today after his team's 2-0 win over manchester united arsenal manager arsene wenger is less happy with his team accusing them of losing a golden opportunity in the title race as they drew with London rivals West Ham to all. Follow that story and the rest of the day's news and sport at guardian.co.uk. The personal details of thousands of political activists who attend meetings and protests are being stored by the police on a secret database. The Guardians carried out a series of investigations into the way protesters are policed and today we look at the hidden apparatus used to monitor what the police call domestic extremists. Rob Evans has the details. This is a secret database of uh, protest and protesters. Uh, We don't know how many people are on it but there's thousands of people on it. 
um, and they are run by a sort of uh, an, a police apparatus that we don't know much about, which is their job is to hunt out people they call domestic extremists. What are domestic extremists? Well, the police think that what uh, domestic extremists are are people who commit crime, and they think that uh, they they in their theory there's no they're saying that you know there's whole campaign groups who are not domestic extremists but need to be monitored because there are domestic extremists within them, and these are people who are the sort of the minority of people who are prepared to to commit crime in order to further their aims and these in a in a sense these units have grown up in order to uh, catch animal rights uh, activists um, and what police are saying is is that domestic extremists are people who basically commit crimes such as going and harassing people or you know trying to shut down power stations or try to close down uh, airports and these people are criminals. But the people who are on this database aren't all criminals, are they? No, I mean, that's the interesting thing. What we found out is that there are, large, there, there are people on the database who have no, got no criminal record at all. Uh, one of these is um, Mark Thomas, the comedian. Uh, he's got no, you know, never committed a crime and never been convicted of committing a crime in his life. And can an individual find out if they're on this database? Yes, in theory they can. Uh, we're featuring a case of uh, Matt Salisbury, who is a activist and journalist, and he's used the Data Protection Act to get entries from the police intelligence files on himself um, released to him. And he's also got a photograph of himself, um, which he's managed to get the police to release to him. And this is a photograph from these intelligence files. And they show him coming in, coming out of a meeting, which was a public meeting organised to, um, held to organise a demonstration in the future. And it shows that he again is someone who has got no criminal record. And they've taken police photographs, uh, photographers have taken a photograph of him coming out of a perfectly public meeting. You say a photograph, what kind of information are they storing about people? Well, in the case of Matt uh, Salisbury, they stored a, a lot of information about what he was wearing at uh, demonstrations. And it goes into a lot of detail about how he's wearing a scarf and a Crombie jacket, um, how he is wearing a, uh, how he is uh, riding a bike. Um, and they also record what he said to police. I mean, at one point he's asking police who are from a particular force, why are they in this area? Aren't they a bit off their manner? and uh, they give an explanation and all of this is recorded and you mentioned animal rights groups this is how this database database emerged so the monitoring of animal rights groups but the groups that they're monitoring now are a very sort of disparate collection of organizations aren't they yes i mean the animal right i mean the police have done a very good job in terms of catching animal rights protesters but the accusation now is, is that having caught the animal rights uh, protesters now they need another target in order to uh, stay in business. And the, the accusation is a classic uh, mission creep, uh, allegation of missing mission creep, which they deny. But they are now, um, their targets now includes environmental camp, uh, groups such as Plain Stupid or uh, Climate Camp, far-right groups such as the English Defence League, far-left groups and 
still the animal rights groups as well. Rob Evans, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash UK. Also on the Guardian's website today. Hi, it's Barry Glendening here from the sports section. Just to let you know what's on today, uh, the main talking point of the weekend, obviously, is Liverpool's uh, win over Manchester United at Anfield yesterday. Both sides finished with 10 men. It was Liverpool's uh, third win in a row over United, so we'll be picking over the bones of that on the site, on our sport blog and in our uh, Football Weekly podcast, which should be up on the site later this afternoon. We'll also have a full roundup of the weekend's other sporting action, rugby, horse racing, uh, you name it, we'll be covering it. So for details of all that and o- other news of uh, men and women hovering and puffing around fields of play all over the country, go to guardian.co.uk slash football and guardian.co.uk slash sport. In a speech today in the City of London, the Shadow Chancellor George Osborne will tell Britain's high street banks to use their profits to support lending and not bonuses. Our chief political correspondent, Nicholas Watt, is in our Westminster office. George Osborne is going to be making a pretty significant speech this morning. He'll be heading off to Thomson Reuters in the city and he's going to be calling on the Treasury and the Financial Services Authorities to come together and to say to the retail banks, that's the big banks in the high street, Lloyds, HSBC, RBS and Barclays, he's going to say to them, you've got to stop paying out uh, your profits in significant cash bonuses. Full stop, he's going to say. And he's going to be saying that that cash should be put onto banks' balance sheets um, to support new lending. And this is all part of the Tories' strategy of trying to outflank Brown on the economy. Well, that's right. I mean, the Conservatives believe that they're in a very, very strong position because, of, go- of course, Gordon Brown said at the beginning of the recession that Britain was best placed to weather the downturn. He gave a pretty clear indication uh, last month that we were already experiencing growth. And on both those counts, hey, we're still in a recession. And uh, the French and the Germans uh, are six months ahead of us uh, pulling out of the recession. So the Conservatives believe that they are in a very strong position, that Gordon Brown's credibility, they believe, on the economy has been shot pieces. They believe that they are ahead of the curve and so they're hoping to really sort of set the agenda by coming out so strongly against uh, cash bonuses in retail banks. The question is, we're not that far away from a general election. Uh, George Osborne could well be Chancellor in six months' time. If this hasn't happened, will he really do this when he's Chancellor? <laughs> well, we'll wait and see about that, Nick. I mean, but uh, Gordon Brown made uh, another prediction about the recession in his podcast. Let's just hear a clip of it. The battle to stop this global downturn becoming a second Great Depression is being won. It is being won only by countries rejecting the protectionism which caused so much damage in the 1930s in favour of coordinated action and intervention. We're also continuing to act on unfair and excessive bonuses being paid in the banking system that your money helped save. We must bring financial markets into closer alignment with the values that everybody holds, hard work, responsibility, integrity and fairness. Nick, um, another area in which Gordon Brown might be proved wrong. Well, uh, the government has had to sort of revise its forecast in the last year. You'll remember at the pre-budget report, that was November last year, Alistair Darling said, I think we will be seeing growth towards the end of June 2009. Well, that didn't happen. So in the budget in April, he talked about how I think we'll see growth towards the end of the year. Well, we're getting towards the end of the year and we've just had uh, the uh, forecasts for the third quarter this year. That's up to September. 
still in recession. So the new phrase that the Chancellor and the Prime Minister are using, and indeed the Prime Minister used it in his podcast over the weekend, is that they are confident that we will receive a return to growth, and the key word is by the turn of the year. So that means that if we don't actually see any growth in 2009, by the turn of the year, could mean that they're easing into uh, 2010. So it is difficult for them. Gordon Brown had hoped to be fighting the general election next year off the back of a clear economic recovery. And while it may be the case that we will see some recovery in 2010, it will not be strong. As Ken Clark, the Shadow Business Secretary, said on the BBC yesterday, if there is growth, it's going to be very weak. Nick Watt. I'm John Dennis. Still to come on Guardian Daily, a historic papal decree has created a new crisis for Anglicans. There are about half a dozen English bishops that I can think of who will take up the offer, and they've always said that they will take like-minded congregations with them. But first, Turkey's Prime Minister has accused the West of treating Iran unfairly over its nuclear programme. Recep Tayyip Erdogan said the Iranian president Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was a friend. His comments in an interview with The Guardian highlight divisions in the NATO alliance, as Robert Tate reports from Istanbul. Well, he's going to Iran at a time when the IAEA inspectors are already in the country to um, look at this uh, uh, newly disclosed um, uranium enrichment uh, facility in Nihon. And uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan is taking a fairly sympathetic line towards Iran. He is saying that Iran is being unfairly treated over its nuclear program, and he pretty much accepts the Iranian protestations that uh, the program is for peaceful purposes, and he is outspoken in his criticisms of uh, some uh, Western countries, and by implication also Israel, and for making threatening noises towards Iran, saying that they're going to devastate Iran and so forth, if um, they feel that the Iranian regime is, going, is building a nuclear weapon. Um, in addition to that, um, he's uh, fairly warm words for uh, Mr. Ahmadinejad, the Iranian president, who, of course, as we all know, is uh, very staunchly anti-Western. Mr. Erdogan describes uh, Mr. Ahmadinejad as a very good friend of Turkey. How worrying is this for the West? I'm not sure that it's, uh, it comes as a, a, a total shock to them. They, they know that, uh, that Erdogan is a man who um, has Islamist political roots, and um, he will be instinctively pro-Iranian in his orientation, because after all, he and Mr. Ahmadinejad really kind of come from the same stripe politically. Both men of the street, both men of of Islam, who uh, take political Islam very seriously and take the religion very seriously. Um, But what it does point out, I think, is the, the... the schism that exists in Western policy because they see, Washington very much sees Turkey as an ally uh, in its uh, war on terrorism that was uh, coined under the Bush administration. Uh, Mr. Erdogan is uh, basically letting us know that um, he has instincts which uh, are much more sympathetic to, to people in the East as opposed to the West. Because uh, the West had hoped that he might act as some kind of mediator with Iran. Well, that's open to debate. I mean, Mr. Erdogan in the, the past has uh, fashioned himself as some mediator between the, the, the West and the, rather the United States and Iran. And that has been received skeptically in Washington and in Tehran. Um, so I think that, that debate seems to have passed for the time being. But there is no doubt that Mr. Erdogan is a man with a, who has a, a foot in, in, in both camps. And uh, Washington obviously thinks he's very friendly to them. Um, he's letting us know, um, well, not 
disclaiming his friendship with the West, he's also letting us know that he's fully friendly with Mr. Ahmadinejad and with the leadership in Iran. Robert Tite. Fifty bishops worldwide, thousands of clergy and even entire Anglican dioceses could convert to Roman Catholicism after a decree by the Pope. He's creating a new section within the Roman Catholic Church, especially for disaffected Anglicans. And it's put many in the Church of England in a quandary, as Riazat Butt, our religious affairs correspondent, explains. I think there are about half a dozen English bishops that I can think of who will take up the offer. And they've always said that they will take like-minded congregations with them. Um, so just explain to us as well, what, what are Anglo-Catholics? They're people we, we talk about as the, the high church, aren't they? Yeah, it's basically Church of England with bells and smells. <laughs> That's the easiest way to describe it. I was at a service on Sunday and there was more incense than you'd find in St. Peter's. It was quite full-on church, pomp ceremony the works and but they, it was still church of england and a lot of the the way that the the modern anglican church has been um, going towards we're talking about women bishops uh, attitudes towards homosexuality and this sort of thing they're f- disillusioned with uh, the way the anglican church is going and so that's why they might be tempted to to join the uh, vatican that's exactly why uh because the vatican does not allow women to be priests and it doesn't knowingly ordain gay men into the priesthood. And you, you went to uh, a meeting called Forward in Faith yesterday. Uh, tell us about that. What was the mood like there? People want to know more of what the papal decree is going to say. Nobody knows anything apart from the two pages that were released uh, last week. People want to know what it involves. If they're priests, they want to know if they have to retrain, which they probably will. They want to know if there's any kind of financial assistance, because if you're a Church of England vicar, you get a house, you get about £25,000, you have staff, you have an office, and when you go to Rome, you don't get any of that. You might earn about £8,000 a year and then rely on donations. So there's a huge price to pay, literally, for clergy. And then people are just wondering how long it's going to take. What exactly will they be able to take with them from the Anglican Church? Not literally, although people are eyeing up their buildings, but they want to know what kind of prayers can they still use. And how's the uh, Anglican Church's leadership uh, responded to this? Ah, Rowan. Rowan Williams. (laughs) Yes, well, at the press conference where this was all announced, he did look very embarrassed when he admitted twice that he didn't know about this development until a couple of weeks ago. But... The Vatican does what it likes. It doesn't consult with anybody. It doesn't need anybody's permission. So why they should have asked Rowan about this is beyond me because the department that carried this out was led by Joseph Ratzinger, who we now know as Pope Benedict XVI, and there was nothing that was going to get in their way. So they were just, they just steamrolled over the Anglican Communion. Ria's at butt. In his role as The Guardian's northern editor, Martin Wainwright hasn't just covered the news in the north of England, he's been an evangelist for the region, reminding us soft southerners what we're missing. His new book, True North in Praise of England's Better Half, provides conclusive proof, if any were needed, that it's not grim up north. Well, John, I've been here now for a quarter of a century and absolutely loved it. And more to the point, uh, my wife, Penny, who was uh, born in the city of London Hospital, so she's a Cockney, um, she will also tell you that she has found it fantastic. And we brought up our two boys here very successfully. And I was triggered to write this book because I still find, after all this time, I go down to London and get this thing about, um, and I'm only like Michelle in Hello, Hello, I shall say this, I shall use this phrase only once. I still find people talk about grim up north to the extent that um, some colleagues and and elsewhere in, in other 
uh, companies and so forth, um, people actually are reluctant to move here. And I thought uh, it is not like that. And so that's what I wanted to do with this book. What about the north of legend? Dark satanic mills, flat caps, cobbled streets, brass bands, extremely unhealthy food. Does that exist? Well, that's our problem. Um, We have this extraordinary image uh, and and a marvellous image in a sense, which many of us cherish. Um, The mills, the brass bands, the flat caps and so forth. Uh, It it was a glorious time um, and a heroic time, but that has gone now. Um, It's heritage. It's for places like the Beamish Industrial Museum uh, and the history books where we can enjoy it, but not allow ourselves to believe that it's still like that and that we're somehow stuck um, in a time bubble. On the food front, um, we do retain fish and chips. <laughs> and uh, that, that's one of the great glories of the North, um, especially in my part of the North Yorkshire, where they cook them in beef dripping, uh, which makes them taste even more delicious. Even the scraps, which you ask for and get free uh, with your fish and chips, um, are absolutely lovely. In fact, in my opinion, the best part. I should say that although I grew up in London, my dad is a Yorkshireman, so I am half Northern. But what about, as you put it in the book, the grumpiness factor? This, this is a subtext to the book. Um, part of the Northern image um, has become being dour and uh, laconic uh, and, and more to the point, in a sense, rather chippy with the North-South divide, which has existed really ever since the Romans. Um, it's only in more modern times that the North has always come to be seen as the inferior partner, the one lagging behind. And I think some Northerners have got into a sort of victim mode about this. A lot of books written in the last um, 50 years, really, have focused on uh, the constant struggles of the North. And, and unfortunately, they've been <clears throat> unfortunately they've been written by extremely good writers. And we need, I think, more good writers to come forward. I mean, Helen Cross, who did My Summer of Love, is an example, um, to paint up... Uh, the good and the prosperous side of the North, the fact that there is a middle class here, would you believe? (laughs) And that all these great industries which had their um, dramatic side in terms of industrial disputes were also triumphs of enterprise, um, innovation and imagination. uh, And those qualities are very much part of the North and one of the pleasures of living here. What are the values of the North that Southerners would do well to adopt? I think the main one, um, just in practical terms, is being... Uh, less stressed, uh, more chilled out. Um, I think that's something that everybody coming to the North discovers. It may just be uh, the fact that there are fewer of us than in the Great Wen than in the metropolis, which is so busy, so vast uh, and so crowded and full of people um, who uh, haven't got the time of day for you. Although when I lived in London, actually, I always thought of myself as living in Chiswick rather than London. And if you divide London up, Um, into localities Uh, they're very friendly but of course that's not a lot of people's experience of London when they're passing through whereas in the north I think people do get a smile and a welcome Um, that's slightly going back to the traditional north you know the very friendly north but I think it's true Um, and going with that this kind of a sense of a new optimism uh, a renaissance is very strong in the north the cities have been transformed Um, the misery memoirs have been transformed I mean we've had to um, recently Peter Kay and Paula Grady, Lily Savage, their, their memoirs of Northern upbringings are resolutely cheerful. They don't, um, they don't deny the difficulties and the problems uh, that they had and the, uh, the very um, straitened circumstances in which they grew up, but, it, but they're full of good cheer. And I think that's a lesson that we can teach. And finally, a, a welcome to newcomers. 
um, lots of southern students come up here. They come up here, interestingly, because they perceive universities like Newcastle, Leeds and Manchester as fun, which, you know, in my day, when I was their age, certainly wasn't reckoned to be the case. Um, and that um, that adds to the liveliness of the place. And immigration here, although persistently seen in recent years as a problem with a capital P, has in the long term always been a benefit to the North, from the Irish, through the Jews, through the Eastern Europeans after the Second World War. Uh, incalculable benefits have been brought to the region, and that will happen, is happening, has happened uh, with uh, the Commonwealth, the new Commonwealth immigration, um, which is thoroughly to be welcomed. And I think for all the problems uh, that we're facing um, for all the BNP in, in, in some parts of our region and the rest of it. In the longer term, we all look back and say, uh, thank goodness they came and thank goodness that we welcomed them. Martin Wainwright and Martin's book, True North in Praise of England's Better Half, is published by Guardian Books. Doug Hardy and Jason Phipps produced today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening. Listener.